Welcome to Good People, Cool Things, the podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. I'm your host, Joey Held, and today's guest is Art Bell, author of Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. And my goodness, this episode is like a masterclass in all things comedy and the business of television. We're getting into how Art, while working at HBO, started what became Comedy Central, how he talked with a lot of people who shot him down and overcame all of that to start the channel and really just kind of dives into all sorts of different elements of the television industry, comedy. We're chatting top comedians. We're telling, he tells a good joke, I tell a bad joke. There's lots of great stuff in here. Get your jokes ready because I want to hear more jokes after this because we're, we're all fired up now. If you'd like to get in touch with Good People Cool Things, you can do so a couple different ways. Shoot me an email, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com, or follow the show on Facebook or Twitter, GPCT Podcast. And of course, you can also shop from the merch store. Maybe I need to start putting jokes on some of the merch. That'll be, ooh, ooh, jotting down a note, business idea. Bam. Fantastic. But before all of that, you can visit the shop, goodpeoplecoolthings.com slash shop. Check that out afterwards, because first, we're getting in this conversation with Art. Who are you? What have you been up to in, let's say, 30 seconds or less? Well, my name is Art Bell, and I just, uh, I'm about to publish my first book. It's a memoir called Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. And it's a memoir about my experience in the early 90s, starting up Comedy Central, and the difficulties I had, and the fun I had, and the craziness we all experienced. And it's really about me being dropped into the comedy business, which at the time, I knew nothing about. So how did you get into that then? I mean, this is, what, about 30 years ago? Yeah. When when you were kind of getting rolling with everything? So how did this all come to be? Well, it came to be like this. When I was a kid, I loved comedy. Um, and I watched a lot of comedy on TV. I read about comedy. I read Lenny Bruce's autobiography about five times. I read National Lampoon, Mad Magazine, the source of all comedy in America, by the way. Uh, I miss that. And, you know, I was really kind of an aficionado, and I I also uh, was very interested in satire. When I got to high school, I started an underground newspaper called The Tongue, which was a satirical newspaper, and did some writing for that, a lot of writing for that, and got in trouble. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> that's one of the great things about comedy. You often get in trouble for uh, for what you're doing. And I really came to understand that comedy w- was a part of me. But I had no real aspiration to get into the comedy business. As a matter of fact, when I went to college, I studied economics. My first job out of college was as an economist in Washington, D.C. But... I was sitting there reading Cole Weekly one day and I said, you know what? I don't think I can do this. And so I quit my job, went back to school, got a job at CBS. That was my first television job and didn't like it very much. But a friend of mine said, hey, come on over to HBO. This place is a riot. And HBO had started uh, six or seven years earlier, maybe a little longer than that. And the people in the hall said, we're going to change television. And of course they did. HBO is a very, very cool place to work. When I got there, I started thinking uh, about an idea I'd had a couple years before, which was why not have a 24-hour comedy channel? And I was really so interested in it that I came up with an idea of what it would look like, how it would be programmed. I talked to all my friends about it. They all said, oh, yeah, that's cool. Um, and then when I got to HBO, I figured I had a willing audience because HBO was going to change television, right? So I started pitching it around a little bit to HBO, which was not my job, but I started talking about it and I pretty much got the same answer, which was comedy channel, 24 hours really doesn't make much sense. You know, it's not something we would do. It's not something anybody would necessarily do. And, uh, we're not going to do it. I was nothing but surprised. I was really surprised because HBO at that time was really making their name in comedy. They were doing one hour comedy specials with Billy Crystal and Whoopi Goldberg, Robin Williams. They were breaking comedy names. Uh, uh, and they were really 
the first name in comedy on the dial. So I persisted a little bit. And everybody said, all right, well, if you really want to do this, you're going to have to talk Bridget into it, Bridget being the uh, head of programming at, at, comedy, at, uh, at HBO. So I made an appointment with Bridget. She was about nine levels above me at the time. <laughs> so I really had to get, you know, screw my courage up. Um, I went in there and she spent a good 15 minutes telling me why it was the world's stupidest idea. She said, Arthur, you can't do a comedy network. Nobody wants to watch that much comedy. There's too much comedy on television as it is. Any of the great comedians, you would never get Whoopi or Robin or Billy on the channel. Their agents wouldn't even consider going on such a channel. And it's the worst idea I've ever heard. And she said, you're new here and you don't know much about television. <laughs> I said, okay, I, uh, I get it. I was very, very uh, disheartened by that. I, I was. But I walked out of the, her office, and by the time I got to the elevator, I said, you know what? She's wrong. She's wrong, and here's why. I mean, this was an era when ESPN was up and running 24 hours a day of sports, but more than 24 hours a day of sports. It was a place for people, for fans, for athletes, for people who loved sports of all kinds to gather. And I don't know if you know this, but in the early days of ESPN, as an example, they weren't doing NBA and, uh, and, and Major League Baseball. They were doing sometimes some of the craziest sports that you've ever heard. Not even crazy, but sometimes high school sports, girls lacrosse games from, from private schools. I mean, they were programming with anything they could get their hands on. But that wasn't the problem. It wasn't a problem at all for them because they were really trying to exist as a place for sports. Then came MTV. And, you know, as you know, MTV became the place for rock music. And I was always surprised, actually, at that time that you had, you know, Mick Jagger going on, ten, on MTV saying, I want my MTV. You'd think a guy like that, who is so established in the rock world, walking onto a new channel was amazing to me. And I thought, why shouldn't comedy have the same thing, have a place for comedians, have a place for innovative comedy, and really represent the center of the comedy universe. That was my idea. And that's what I wanted to do. So after Bridget says, this is the worst idea. What's your next step then after after saying no, she's wrong? Where do you go from there? Well, it's a good question. And uh, talk about thinking outside the box. I actually thought outside the company at that point. I went back to my office and I started working on essentially um, a plan that I could pass around to Viacom, which was, you know, the, the parent company of MTV and CBS and some of the other big entertainment companies and see if they were interested in doing a comedy network because my contention was that somebody was going to do a comedy network. I tried to sell HBO as, look, you guys ought to be the guys to do it. But if they said no, I said I wasn't going to stop there. I would, uh, you know, try and get it out there a little bit. So I started putting that together. And as luck would have it, my boss's boss was wandering by and he stopped in. He said, hey, what are you working on? I said, well, to tell you the truth, I'm working on this idea I've had for a long time, a comedy network. And I really, you know, think it would be a good thing for HBO to start. And he says, well, have you run this by Bridget? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, she wasn't really that fascinated with the whole thing. And he said, well, maybe we should just take this to the chairman. I said, to the chairman? You know, it's Michael Fuchs. I said, how are we going to get in there? He says, oh, the guy's a friend of mine. I was in there this morning. Come on, let's go. <laughs> and I stood up. I, I thought he was kidding at first. And he walked me to the chairman's office and we didn't have an appointment. And he says, uh, this is Larry. I'm here with Art Bell. I want to get in and talk to Michael about an idea Art has. And I hear Michael call, Larry, weren't you just here? I just spoke to you. What's the deal? So we walked in, I sat down and Larry says, tell Michael your idea. I had no presentation. I had no props. I had nothing with me. 
but me. And I said, okay, this is uh, go time, I guess, show time. <laughs> and I pitched it as best I could. Uh, and I made an impression. Michael loves comedy. So he sat there and he was kind of really saying, yeah, maybe a comedy network is a good idea. And then he says, have you run this by Bridget? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I did. She really didn't jump at the chance. And he said, well, I tell you what, let's see if this will work. I'll give you a few months and some money, go out, do some research, put a, put a demo tape together, get your idea together, come back, give me a presentation, and then we'll see where we go from here. And that's how it started. That's awesome. Started. Do you think had you, well, I guess you, you eventually created a, a more in-depth presentation for him. Um, but do you true. think that having to do it off the cuff actually worked out in your favor there? Um, I guess, you know, you can't argue with the evidence. It did work out in my favor. <laughs> um, I think what really helped in that situation was it's not something I'd come up with a week before. I'd been talking about this concept and how to do it and how I thought it should be done probably for three or four or five years by that time, you know? And so I really kind of had a good idea in my mind of what it would be and how it would work, you know? And I also spent enough time talking to people, including Bridget, but a lot of other people in the television business, friends, people who were all over the company and other companies about the idea. And you know what? They would say, good idea, but... Have you thought of this? Or it's too expensive. Or comedy, you need a lot of writers. Or what are you going to do for, you know? And after all that conversation in my head, and I'd also written it down by then, I had a good idea of what, uh, what I wanted to say to anybody who asked. You're right. It was an elevator pitch. And uh, that's what I delivered. Awesome, awesome. And I, I think that's a, a good kind of reminder for any business is – uh, doing kind of that market research there. You were having those conversations. It wasn't just like, oh, I think this will be good. Like you talk to a lot of people. And I imagine after having that impromptu presentation that you continued doing that then when you had some money and it was like, okay, how can I prove that this will work? Well, that's the first thing. I mean, one of the things I learned before doing comedy while I was working at HBO was how important research is to television. I mean, we all know about Nielsen and how they measure how many people are watching and what demographics they are and everything else. But research is really something that programmers use to understand what people are watching, how they're enjoying it, what makes them tune in, what makes them turn the channel. Um, and on top of that, how people use television. You have to think of television as something that's in everybody's home. How do they watch it? Do they sit down and watch it or do they keep it on all the time or do they have it on at dinner? I mean, we were learning all of those things at HBO because we really wanted to understand television. And I've been through that with various projects for three or four years at HBO. So I'd listen to a lot of people say, you know, television is very important to me and here's why. And then they tell you why, you know, why it was. They watch the soaps they or they watched comedy on television or they watch movies they really told you what was important to them and so by the time i got to that you know the point where i was pitching michael i knew research was an important part and i also knew research had the possibility to kill the whole project i mean when michael said got to do some research one of the things he wanted to find out was does anybody really want a 24-hour comedy network um so we did research we put together a a, a demo film uh, demo tape and which was about 20 minutes and very funny and no I don't have a copy of it anymore <laughs> I used to have it you know I used to go talk to kids in high school about it I used to show it but somehow I lost it I, I think maybe one of the kids stole it I'm serious I think he just <laughs> grabbed it out of the machine I can see that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's probably selling on eBay for a hundred dollars now um, what was on the tape it was we had a comedian here l let me tell you how this whole thing started one of the reasons people didn't want to do a comedy network is because they thought it was very, very expensive. I said, the way MTV got started was they didn't do expensive programming. They got people to contribute uh, music videos. And the music videos were free and they claimed the music videos were promoting the band. And that's how they started. They put a lot of music videos on. I said, we can do the same thing with comedy. We can start partly with the HBO library. I said, but we can also show clips. We can get clips of movies, clips of comedians, 
doing their stand-up routines, clips of TV, all kinds of clips. And I found out that that might have been a good idea, but it turns out that you can't do that because the unions won't let you do that. So I said, oh, all right. So then we went to the unions, Directors Guild of America, Writers Guild, and we found out that we could do it if we kept the clip under a certain length and called it promotion. So now I had a secret for how to really pull this off. And that's how we started. We started with clips, we started with some movies, we started almost immediately thinking about what original programming would look like. Um, the demo tape itself was a lot of clips, which were very funny, and basically the comedian talking about what you're gonna see and doing a little shtick on his own. That was it. And that's how we started. Um, you'll see in the book that what happened before we launched was that the Rector's Guild of America changed their mind. And they said, you know what? You got two months to launch, but we decided you shouldn't use clips. And you can imagine what kind of <laughs> <laughs> panic that threw us into, which, you know, is another interesting um, moment in this whole thing, because I thought briefly that maybe, okay, the whole thing's dead. But then I thought, all right, the whole thing's not dead. We're going to figure this out. We're going to find a way around it. We're going to do what we have to do. And we did. We, we got enough clips to launch. And when I say enough clips to launch, I mean enough clips to get us on the air the first day. Previously, <laughs> we had millions of clips, and now we couldn't use them. Mm -hmm. um, so we get on the air the first day, and uh, the guy who's actually scheduling the clips and I were talking at the launch party. I go, how's it going? He says, great. He says, the problem is the second day looks a lot like the first day <laughs> because we don't have enough clips. So anyway. After the launch, we had to really buckle down and figure out what this channel was going to be. And I'll tell you, one thing that came together very early was the fact that my prediction that comedians in the comedy business would appreciate having a channel of their own came true almost, almost day one. Comedians wanted, first of all, they wanted jobs. They wanted to be part of it. They were flattered that there was going to be a channel that was all about the things they were doing as an, as an industry. And it really um, was one of the most gratifying parts of the early days of comedy is we had all kinds of comedians wandering around, pitching us stuff, uh, trying to get involved. Um, and uh, and I, I knew when I saw that, I knew that the channel was going to be successful. That, that, That's awesome. That so from when Larry brings you in to talk with Michael and you, you do your impromptu pitch to that launch day. How long was that? Michael said he wanted to see me in a month or two or three. I think he said we did a pitch at that point, three months into it. And Michael said, I want it on the air by November. Now this was, that was six months prior to November. So we got the, from the time he said, go, I want it on the air. We took six months to get it on the air. So the whole thing from the pitch in Michael's office to on the air was less than a year by a long shot, you know, nine, 10 months. That's impressive. That's impressive. It was crazy. <laughs> and when it did get on the air, how close was it to what you had envisioned when you were first chatting with everyone? Or did you kind of have to make some concessions just based on the, the research you had done? Well, it wasn't so much on the research, based on the research we've done. It was based on the realities of the situation. Um, first of all, I was, as I said, I was dropped into the comedy industry uh, without knowing that anything about comedy. I mean, I hadn't worked in it. And there is a comedy business. They teamed me up with uh, the vice president of comedy at HBO, a guy named Stu Smiley, who was obviously very knowledgeable about the comedy business and he started working you know on the programming making sure we had writers making sure we had talent i mean he really worked that side while i was working on other aspects of programming like the clips movies shows anything else we were doing so when it all came together on the first day it was a combination of clips and and what were essentially comedy jocks the way mtv had video jocks but Stu's vision for what they were doing was he really wanted them to do a show. He really wanted them to do, to, to have a showcase for their talent. And, you know, I heard that and I said, yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. 
so when I went on the air, it was a little bit of a combination of those two things. And getting them screwed in tightly took a couple of months after we launched. But it happened. It happened. Now, I, I do want to revisit the uh, second part of the title of this book, which is how you started Comedy Central. I feel like we've, we've gone through that pretty nicely. But then how you lost your sense of humor. So where, where did it go from, hey, this is great to, I don't have a sense of humor anymore? Well, you have to imagine me, again, being dropped into this situation, being given deadlines that were impossible, and knowing almost nothing about the comedy as a business. I mean, I like comedy. I knew a lot about comedy. But um, so there I was trying to figure this out. And it was daunting. It was really daunting. Now, on top of that, after we launched, the first couple of months were, I guess you could call it a disaster. I mean, <laughs> things, were, things were going as badly as they, as they could possibly go. And one of the reasons is Michael Fuchs, who was the chairman, was so proud of the idea that we were going to launch a comedy network. And he was telling everybody. We were <laughs> so well covered in the press. Everybody knew it. And so we had, you know, we had the entire entertainment business focused in on our launch and what was going to happen and it was written up widely for the next two months not favorably <laughs> we got we got some of the worst all-time reviews uh that any channel has ever gotten um <laughs> i will point out that most channels launch and they're kind of crappy at the beginning but there was a lot of attention as i said because this was hbo's effort and uh, a low point for me was a about a month after the channel launched, my mother called and she didn't get the channel, but she said, you know, I have friends who have the channel and they said, it's not funny. And they wanted me to tell you that I said, <laughs> thanks very much for your support. At that point, we were called in. This is two months in bad reviews. Michael was embarrassed. I think he was embarrassed having launched this channel and put himself behind it and really seeing it flounder. He called us in. There were about four or five of us, and he sat us down. He didn't say anything for maybe 30 seconds. And then he said, you know, it took a comedy channel to make me lose my sense of humor. And none of us laughed. And I looked around, and I said, my God, we did. We all lost our sense of humor sitting here right now. It's gone. And that's a, it's just a moment I remember. And Actually, from then on, we obviously pushed through to get the channel started. And that's what the book is about. What happened after that, how we figured it out uh, and, uh, and ended up with Comedy Central. So what was the most surprising uh, element? You, you, know, you said that you've been kind of dropped into the business side of things. And I think for anyone that's getting into a business uh, or any kind of endeavor where they really don't have that much experience in it. I think there's definitely a lot of surprises and challenges. So was there one that really stuck out to you? Yes, I, I, there were several, but the one, <laughs> the, one I, the one that was really interesting was that I, uh, when I first went to a comedy club with Stu and some of his people, uh, we stood in the back watching these comics, you know, trying to look for talent. And I'm laughing hysterically. You know, I think everybody's funny. And I look around and nobody else is laughing. They're just standing there and they're saying, that's funny. That's, <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. I mean, with a straight face. I mean, they weren't even smiling. And I instantly got the picture that these people did not laugh when it was funny. They just said it was funny. Uh, and that was, you know, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> There was one other great surprise that was similar. I was in a pitch meeting with a, with a comedian and it was an early pitch meeting for me and we're sitting around and he has me on the floor. It was Bobcat Goldthwait, who's still around. He's, he's a great, very funny guy. He's got me on the floor. I don't even remember what the pitch was about. And it, at one point, I made a joke and everybody turned to look at me. <laughs> Like I had just insulted everybody's mother simultaneously. <laughs> um, after the meeting, Stu took me aside and he said, look, uh, you know, these people are professionals. You don't really want to kind of be in the room competing with professionals. And I said, <laughs> okay, got it. I won't make that mistake again. So, you know, really, this was a 
process of me learning about the comedy business to the extent I needed to know. I mean, the, the head writer at Comedy Channel used to say, me, say to me all the time, what do you know about comedy? You don't know anything about comedy. What are you doing here? You don't know anything about, you don't know a thing about comedy. And which made me feel kind of bad, honestly. But <laughs> I'm not sure he was totally wrong at the time. You know, I didn't know the business and I didn't know uh, enough about it. And certainly I didn't know what these guys knew about it. Um, so I was, you know, I was learning. Do you remember the joke that you told? I don't. Mercifully. No. <laughs> you know, those really <laughs> traumatic moments, they fade. They oh, go it's, away. Yeah, it sounds they brilliant in your head. And then you're just <laughs> they, like, nope. Yeah, they go yeah. away. <laughs> okay, so you said that you powered through those first uh, initial months there. Was it, was there like a, a light bulb moment or like one specific point where you were like, okay, we're going to, get through this and this is this is turning into a success or was it just a series of events over the next coming months and years i think it was a series of events during that first year and let me let me tell you i in order to understand this story you have to know that a day after comedy central announced with great fan comedy channel rather announced with great fanfare that they, they were going to come into existence michael fuchs made the announcement Billy Crystal was standing right next to him. HBO was going to do this great thing. We're launching a comedy network. It'll be on the air in November. The very next day, MTV Network said, we're doing a comedy channel. And it's going to be on the air by next April. Now, <laughs> we know what happened. They decided, based on our announcement, that they better get into the game. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they did. Never underestimate the competition. They had no plans. They made up plans instantly as we, you know, as uh, as we got into the business, they got into the business. They launched in April, about six months after we launched. And it was a fight. I mean, there's no other way to say it. It was, you know, Macy's against Gimbel's. It was, you know, it was, uh, it, it was a real bare knuckles fight. We made fun of them. They made fun of us. They put posters in front of our offices. We put posters in front of their offices. I mean, it was really, it was really that kind of thing. And towards the end of that year, I thought we had it licked. I really thought we were in the lead. I thought Comedy Channel were doing great. We, we had done some really, really good things. One, we got Mystery Science Theater 3000, Ooh. which was a cult hit for us. I mean, and I have to tell you, it was a surprise because it came in the mail early <laughs> on. I'm serious. Uh, our head writer said, you know, we have to do a show. There's a little digression. We have to do a show that's watch us watch television or watch us watch a movie. And so everybody's sitting around talking about this for about three or four days. And then somebody walks in and says, hey, we just got in the this in the mail. It's it's a guy and two robots watching movies and making watchtracks. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was great. So that solved our initial problem. And uh, as I said, MST 3000 became a cult hit, really got our name out there and really started to put some, some dedicated viewers in front of us. Uh, not only for that, but for some of the other things we were doing. Um, so towards the end of that year, I figured, okay, we got MST 3000, we're really cooking here. The other guys, they were called Ha, the Comedy Network. I didn't think they were cooking so well. And I get called into the office and Michael announces that they're merging Ha with Comedy Channel. And they're going to form a new Comedy Network named To Be Determined. And uh, it starts today. And they fired most of my bosses and most of the people who were move, working at H, from the HBO side and from the Viacom, from the MTV network side. They took me and the head of programming from the MTV network side and said, you guys figure it out. And they threw us into a room and we figured it out. I mean, we had to put it together. Three months later, we were on the air as Comedy Central, which is a name we, you know, figured out together. And to a certain extent, that was almost harder than launching the thing in the first place because imagine taking two arch competitors with two completely different cultures and two completely different visions of what a comedy network should be and putting them together and saying, okay, you guys have to work together now and you guys have to figure this out. 
and you guys have to make it a success. It was, it was, it was a challenge. Had you interacted with that other person before or, Never. or was it more just like complete? Yeah. Our China man. <laughs> I knew nothing about him. I, I knew his name. I knew his name. His name was Mike Klinghoffer. Um, and you know, he was a professional. He, he had a, you know, great reputation at MTV networks. So when I met him and we started talking, we realized that we had different kinds of concepts for the channel, but we also realized that we just doubled our assets. They had programming, we had programming, and putting those together instantly made a better channel. So really it was a matter of just kind of figuring out where we went from there, how to arrange things, what personnel under us we were gonna keep and bring into the mix. And we did it, we did it, you know, looking back on it in a very, very smooth way. Although at the time we probably were <laughs> figured, are we actually gonna pull this off? So it was good. Nice. Uh, you mentioned MST3K. Would you say that that was your favorite clip or show from uh, from the comedy channel days, or yeah. did you have another one? Yeah. No, no. That was that was a breakthrough show for everybody, and it was really, you know, it was really everything about a sh everything I I sort of hoped comedies would be comedy channel or comedy central. It was such an innovative show. You know, nobody had really seen anything like it. And it was skillfully done and it showed up. I mean, that's exactly what I wanted the channel to be, a magnet for new, young, innovative comics to do innovative things. So that's that's one of the reasons it was my favorite. Yeah, I remember showing it in a high school English class. We had to, I think it was just bring a like a clip of something that you enjoyed and like some people would bring in books or songs or something and i i was like oh i gotta bring in something from from mst3k and it was uh very poorly received i would say by the class is that right they, yeah they like i mean there were a few laughs here and there and i was like did i pick a, like a bad clip of it i picked uh one of the shorts that they had done because i was like you could get the full oh, yeah um the full thing and it was how to uh how to date I, I how to go on a like date gonna, yeah how to go one on of my date. favorites yeah yeah it's so good <laughs> and i don't know maybe just a 14 year old high school kids just not uh well listen not getting if, all the subtle references <laughs> you threw a lot at them if they were 14 years old i mean it's not only like this kind of comedy but how to go on a date so they were oh yeah it's like they were probably like wait a them. second yeah, they, would those guys please shut up i'm trying to figure out how to go on a date here <laughs> well anyway as you know, MST3K lives on as uh, as riff tracks, yeah. and those guys are some of the funniest guys I ever met. Really, terrific, terrific guys. Awesome, yeah. I definitely still want to see it live. That's an experience um, that everyone I've I've heard that has gone to it just loves it, and it's it's fantastic. I have not seen it live, although I did. My kids dragged me to, not dragged me to. I wanted to go. <laughs> it was it was being shown live in a movie theater, meaning it was being originated in Minneapolis, and then we saw it in the movie theater a lot. It was great. It was really fun. And the audience was right there with them. They had the, they had the paraphernalia. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and when Joel Hodgson walked on, he was a surprise guest. The place went nuts. So nice. it was good. Awesome. Was Austin good. has uh, Master Pancake, which is a, uh, a comparable. I think I remember uh, chatting with the guy who started it, and he said something. I, I think the original name was like, mystery science pancake or something like something oh, really? that was way more of a ripoff uh, -huh. uh and then they were like okay we should probably at least differentiate it a little bit but um i think that's a it's a good austin sort of take on it of yeah just watching but they tend to watch uh, more blockbusters instead of the the crummy uh well, c was, and d list movies let me let me tell you something we had to watch the crummy c and d lists they had to do that because as it turns out what the, what the guys were doing in Minneapolis was taking movies off the shelf. They'd take mm -hmm. The Godfather and they would do The Godfather. Now you can imagine that was a great show. Mm -hmm. The problem is at that point, you couldn't get The Godfather. You couldn't license The Godfather to have these guys sit and make fun of it. Mm -hmm. Impossible. So what we had to start with was films that are in the public domain, meaning nobody owned them anymore. They were just, you know, there for the taking. And... We had to get good prints of them, which was not always easy. And they were mostly B movies from, you know, the 50s or 60s that were horrible. 
you know, which made it <laughs> in some sense made it easier to, you know, to have fun with mm -hmm. it. But, uh, and, and they did a great job. They did a great job. Do you have a favorite from all, all of the, the collection? I'm thinking, um, Puma man, I think is my favorite. You know, Puma man. I don't know if I do. Puma man okay. was so completely ridiculous. <laughs> he was, he was like a superhero, you know, and he had a cape and he flew, but none of it made sense. And, and the dialogue was ridiculous. And it was just every time the announcer said Puma man, you know, you did, oh brother, but they did such a great job with it. So, did he that, also have Puma characteristics or was he just called Puma Man? <laughs> who the heck knows? I mean, <laughs> you, you couldn't really, I mean, so many of these, of these movies didn't make sense. And I always ask the question, how did those movies get made? And the answer is, well, somebody wanted to make a movie. There were, you know, ways to make it cheaply and there were tax advantages to making it. Uh, and so somebody said, okay, I'll finance it. Maybe it'll do good, do well. If not, I write the whole thing off and take the tax advantage. So it was kind of that kind of play, which kept turning out some of these really bad movies. There's a movie called The Room. Oh yeah, Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> yeah, which is the all-time worst movie ever made. You know, Plan Nine from Outer Space used to have that uh, distinction. I think The Room overtook it. But, uh, <laughs> so they're they're still out there. Bad movies are still out there. Still and so magical. <laughs> it was, but. We got to Comedy Central and we were also in the process of discovering new ways to make innovative television. And one of the things I was proudest of there was in 1992, this was you know a year or so after we, we got together as Comedy Central, we needed to make a splash and we were trying to figure out how to do that. And we came up with the idea that we were gonna do a live show covering the State of the Union address that the president was going to give at nine o'clock at night, as he always does once a year. We were going to cover it live and have a comedian comment on what the president was, was saying. So everybody thought we were crazy, including the networks when we started asking for the feed, you know, so we could show the president standing in the dress. And the first comedian we got to do that show, Al Franken, <laughs> which I always think is the most ironic thing because he ended up a <laughs> senator. But he was the perfect choice because, first of all, he knows the landscape. Mm -hmm. He's very smart uh, and he's very funny. So the show really was a breakthrough show. I mean, it was a one night wonder. Uh, and we weren't, you know, we weren't in every home in America, but it got great reviews. And it really kind of put us on the map. From then on, we started taking on covering live events, live political events. We covered the conventions. We covered the State of the Union every year after that. We, you know, and, and you could see that what we were doing was kind of sneaking into um, uh, daily show territory, you know, covering the news on a daily or a live basis in a way that was comical, in a way that was funny so that Really, we were, we were playing to the audience, our audience, which was a younger audience who wasn't necessarily watching the news and sure as heck had no interest in watching the presidential State of the Union address every year. So, you know, I, again, that was, that was a great moment for us. And I think it was uh, a defining moment for Comedy Central. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, my earliest Comedy Central memories, I think, are watching The Daily Show. Maybe, maybe an early South Park or something, but that was like kind of my introduction to politics. So totally, yeah. <laughs> I'm in that group for sure. <laughs> Talk about a show that's made a huge difference. I mean, you know, again, uh, I left Comedy Central around that time, uh, as you, you know, as I talk about in the book. And somebody asked me recently, you know, does it bother you that you left and then the channels become such a great success and you weren't there to... And the answer is no. I love looking in my rearview mirror and seeing, you know, this huge comedy edifice that is standing uh, that was, you know, built in part by me in the early days. So it makes me feel great. So I was uh, creeping around your website a little bit, and you said that your most interesting and least uh, successful project was commercializing 3D television. <laughs> uh, can you dive a little more into that? Yeah, I was... Um... It was a great experience. Uh, we, I was working in consulting with a, a couple other guys 
And Panasonic came around and wanted to get our help because they wanted to make sure that there was programming around for this new 3D television set they were introducing. And what I learned from Panasonic is in order to sell televisions, you have to do technical innovations, you know, 4K television or, you know, better sound, better picture, better whatever. So 3D was seen as, okay, we're going to do 3D. We'll be six months ahead of the other guys doing 3D and we'll have six months of great sales. We started looking at the available 3D television, uh, 3D programming. And there were a bunch of movies at that point. Uh, and we put together with DirecTV, I will say, it was a joint venture between Panasonic and DirecTV, a 3D television channel that showed 3D movies. They also made original 3D productions. Um, and the stuff was, in my opinion, mind blowing. I don't know if you've seen 3D television in your life. Uh, I have, but yeah, I'm always, I'm always impressed by it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've all seen, I think everybody's pretty much seen 3D movies, which are mm -hmm. very impressive. You're sitting there and it really is impressive. Um, and 3D television has the same impact on a smaller screen. The problem is uh, you had to wear glasses. And you wouldn't think that was such a huge problem. Certainly when you walk into a movie, they hand you the glasses and you walk out and you throw away the glasses. For some reason, all, television audiences at home were not too happy about wearing, wearing the glasses. And we just couldn't get past that. Uh, I think that was one big thing. The other big thing that I recall from my research on this was, as you try and make television or video more realistic, enhancing the sound does a better job than enhancing the picture. Uh, and they found this out when they were trying to do simulations for the army with tanks and, you know, uh, airplane simulations, all that. And they found they could make the picture better, 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 but that didn't have much impact. When they made the sound more realistic and around, surrounding them, then people really believed where they were. And I always had that in the back of the mind of mind as we're improving this whole experience with 3D television. People didn't need it improved. And listen, when it comes right down to it, what makes television or movies or books or anything else? Storytelling and characters. Okay. So at the end of the day, you could have a great story and great characters. You may not need 3D to tell the story in a way you want. Now, with that said, I will say the directors loved 3D. Television directors loved it. Um, movie directors loved it because it gave them another thing to play with. It mm -hmm. gave them another um, uh, way to kind of convey their stories. But as a television proposition, it didn't last very long because of the glasses, I think. That's so interesting. I wonder if uh, 30 years from now, when we have all this technology embedded in our brain, uh, if, that'll, if that'll make a comeback then. I'll tell you when it'll make a comeback, when they have glasses-free 3D. And they are talking about that, and I've seen versions of it, not too great yet, but they'll come up with it, and then, then maybe they'll sell it. Is it just on the screens themselves, on the TV screens, or are they um, some other kind of glasses-free? No, no, they're, they're TV screens. Okay, okay. Their TV screens. As a matter of fact, they're using them occasionally now in gigantic advertising because it looks really cool from a distance. So you may keep your eye out for it. Interesting. Interesting. Now, one of the things I like to do for this podcast is ask a question that you wish you were asked more frequently. And I liked yours a lot. Are comedians all depressed and not funny when they're off camera? <laughs> the reason I like that question is because it's, it's based on truth. There are comedians and comedy writers who are depressed and not having a great time at all, unless they're on stage. But, you know, comedians as a group are like everybody else. There's all kinds of different, you know, different approaches to the thing. And there were many, many comedians who were funny all the time, you know, or at least charming all the time, you know, easy to talk to. John Stewart was, was uh, you know, a guy I found easy to talk to and just a nice guy to hang around with. Mark Maron was another guy like that. He's, you know, and he, his, Mark Maron's act was, you know, very kind of serious and intellectual and angsty, but he was, you know, just a smart guy and fun to talk to. There were comedians that, you know, I guess were harder to approach, you know, or were harder to have the conversation with because they were so down, you know, they were just mm -hmm. so remote 
They were so removed. They were thinking about their act all the time or thinking about the comedy all the time. But, uh, you know, again, it, it's a, there was a huge variation in comedians, as you can imagine. Um, I remember Stephen Wright, who I thought would be kind of a depressive, you know, because mm-hmm. when you hear his act, <laughs> he was actually very funny and a very nice guy to hang around with. But he talked that way. And I remember we were walking down the street in a group and somebody says, hey, Steve, you know, your new album's coming out. He goes, yes, I'm very excited. (laughs) (laughs) But he smiled, you know, and that's the way he was, you know, and it was just so much fun to be there. (laughs) I can picture that. That's fantastic. (laughs) Yep. Awesome. Well, that segues very nicely into our top three then of your top three favorite all-time comedians. You know, it's a it's it's one of those questions. If I ask you two of your top three authors, rock bands, you know, listen, if three is a bad place to stop usually. <laughs> but for the sake of the conversation, I will say that um, Richard Pryor is has uh, really been an all-time favorite of me since I was a kid, since I first saw him in the mid 60s on the ed sullivan show or mid to late 60s i guess it was um second is probably going to surprise you or maybe it'll surprise you albert brooks Mm -hmm. and the reason albert brooks the reason i love albert brooks as a stand-up he was so first of all he's so funny but he was so innovative and i recently posted one of his classic bits which is on on my facebook feed which is um rewriting the national anthem and he gets on there with a piano and he says you know the national anthem it's a great you know we have a national anthem here what if we had to what if somebody said let's get a new national anthem it was decided we should have a new national how would we do that would we hire somebody would we hire a songwriter to do that no we'd have auditions of people saying here's my idea for the national anthem so he says i take you now to the auditions and he did like seven or eight people <laughs> auditioning their national anthem and it was a complete riot and i put it up the other day because it was i think this was albert brooks birthday and i got so many comments like oh my god this holds up so well and he did so many crazy things like that on stage that he has to be one of my favorites and then finally jerry seinfeld who my first experience with Jerry Seinfeld was, I guess it was in 84. I was working on some other project at 80, uh, at HBO. And I was in Minneapolis at the Guthrie Theater for a performance by this guy named Jerry Seinfeld. Never heard of him. I happened to be sitting next to his agent um, just by chance. And so he comes on and he has the entire audience on the floor for 45 minutes. Now, you know, you see a new comedian, they have great material. They start with five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. This guy was unbelievable. He had so much material. At the end of the thing, I turned to his agent. And I said, you know what? If I, if I could buy stock in a comedian, I'd buy this guy. And he said, you know what he says to me? It's too late. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld went on to be, you know, one of the great stand-up comedians. He loves doing stand-up. He still loves doing stand-up. Um, and I've seen him do, we hired him to do shows for us once in a while. He was on the air, but I mean, for um, affiliates and advertisers before he was doing his series, I saw him do two back-to-back 50-minute to an hour shows without repeating a word. Wow. New material. I, I was, it's just astounding the, the amount of, of, uh, of stand-up material he, he had. He was very prolific and very funny. That's it. Those are my three. It's fantastic. That's a, With an explanation. It's a wonderful <laughs> list. I like it. I, I always like the explanation. Every once in a while, someone will just list like three names yeah, right. <laughs> and move on. And I'm like, no, I like go into why. I want to I hear the why. I will say Albert Brooks is my favorite Simpsons guest star as well when he was Hank Scorpio, uh, which again, that might have been one of my first introductions to Albert Brooks. I, But but well, you should go back. Oh, absolutely. Go back I'm, I'm looking up the some of national anthem. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, look up some of that stuff. For it's sure. Great. Absolutely. Well, Art, thank you so much for uh, hopping on. If people want to check out your book, want to learn more about yeah. you, want to see all these great clips that you're sharing, where can they find you? Well, I have, uh, 
first, the name of the book is Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Um, I have a website, artbellwriter.com, and I have a Facebook page, Art Bell Author. And those are two places where, you know, I'm keeping everybody apprised of what's going on, keeping you posted. Book comes out September 15th. It is available for pre-order on Amazon and the other places. So you can go buy it now. Uh, and, um, you know, I hope people come check it out. I hope people check it out. Fantastic. Yeah. A terrific read. And thank you so much. This was, this was wonderful. I feel like I just learned a lot. Like I, I just took a master course on the, the ins and outs, the TV business. Oh, I'm glad. Well, there's a lot more in the book if you really want. Absolutely. To <laughs> yes. Yeah. Don't give it all the way on the podcast. Just, to, <laughs> just enough. Uh, do you want to end with a corny joke? As I, uh, I often do. You can share your favorite. I've got one. You know, jokes, uh, jokes. I, 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 I do tell jokes sometimes. I have a favorite joke. Let's hear it. I've never told it on any kind of video presentation. <laughs> so this, this is really scary. <laughs> a boy walks up to his father and he says, Dad, what's ethics? His father said, son, that's a very important question. It's such an important question. I'm going to illustrate with a story. Suppose you own a fur shop. A woman comes into your shop and she wants to buy a fur for $100. You give her the fur, she puts the money down on the table and she starts to walk out. You pick up the money and you notice she's giving you $200 by mistake. Now here's where the ethics comes in. Do you tell your partner? <laughs> What's your joke? Uh, well, this is not my favorite, but I end every episode of the podcast with a uh, with a corny joke, and I figured I'd, I'd try and do a little comedian-related one. Okay. Um, but did you know that surgeons are actually really good comedians? It's true. They always leave their patients in stitches. That's a bad joke. I did get it. I did get <laughs> it. <laughs>